as we continue this series in John 17. We're really looking, as I said before, at the Lord's Prayer, although it's often called the High Priestly Prayer. It's the greatest prayer ever offered on earth. I want us to read from verse 1 to verse 10. Last time we covered verses 1 to 5. We'll just reread those for some context. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Amen. Did you ever watch that show, Undercover Boss? I've seen it quite a few times. My dad really enjoys it. He often records them. But I'm always wondering when they're ever going to switch the roles. I think it would be helpful from time to time if it wasn't always the boss of the company going behind the scenes to see what their workers are doing, how they're talking about their work and how much effort they put in. I think it would be good once in a while for the workers to go undercover in the boss's headquarters to sit in on the CEO meetings and hear what the boss is saying and what he's doing for his employees. Well... With this prayer of Jesus, we as servants of Christ are invited to listen in to our master's conversation with the other persons of the Godhead. God has nothing to hide. We have his will revealed to us in his word. And with John 17, we have an intimate gateway into the speech between, his fa- between the father and the son. They further reveal the will of God for the world and for God's children. And so as we continue the study of this prayer, hopefully our appreciation of how great a privilege that is will grow. Last time we looked at Christ's prayer for his glorification in verses 1 to 5. We noted a few things. Number one, that the son's desire was to bring glory to his father. We noted that his gift to those his father gave him is eternal life and that that is the duration of life that it goes on forever but it's also the purpose of life that they may know you so this is what eternal life is we also saw that christ's prayer was for his own glory and that glory was based on the work that he had accomplished this next part from verses 6 to 19 is really christ's prayer for his disciples and by extension that is his prayer for us if we are his. I want to just divide this lengthy section because there's a lot to feast on. And so we're going to look at verses 6 to 10. In verse 6, we will see 
Well, we'll see in the whole thing that Christ has revealed three things to his disciples. The first is in verse 6, and that is that he has revealed the name of God to his disciples. And we're going to look at what that really means. Then in verses 7 to 8, he has revealed the words of God to them. And finally, in verses 9 to 10, we will see that Christ's glory is revealed in and through his disciples. So firstly, look with me again at verse 6, and we see the name of the Lord revealed. Jesus' prayer for his own glorification naturally comes into this part of his prayer, a prayer for his disciples, which will take up the majority of the whole prayer. And verse 6 acts like a mission statement for this prayer, because in it, Christ expresses how precious his disciples are to him. They're so precious that the Father gave them to Christ's care and instruction. And they're equally precious to God the Father because he has already possessed them and he's known us in eternity past. Believers are spoken of here as a gift from the Father to the Son. And the Son treasures that gift so much that he prays for them. And then he will move on to lay down his very life for them. Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to them. People who know me or who know my father, if they meet me for the first time, they often say, I see so much of Billy in him. And I usually cringe at that point. What they mean is my appearance is similar, my mannerisms, my sense of humor, similar interests. And in that, they see a likeness with my father. But what Jesus is in relation to his father means far more than those things. I can be no clearer than the apostle Paul, who said, Christ is the image of the invisible God in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Hebrews 1, we read that Christ is the exact representation of his being. This is why Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So whenever Jesus says he has manifested God's name to his disciples, he means more than God's actual name. A name spoke of one's character. We see this a lot in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, God changed the name of Abram, Abram, um, which meant exalted father, was changed to Abraham, which meant father of many, because God made a covenant with him, and, and that was reflected even in the name. Or you could consider the lesser-known significance of the prophet Micah. Micah's name means, who is like God? And that's not only his name, but it's also one of the key texts in the book of Micah. This is the verse. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? For Jesus to reveal the name of God to his disciples and to us, was for Jesus to reveal the very nature of God and his attributes. Jesus surely reveals who God is in a supreme and unique way. And it's why uh, it's the only name given under heaven by which men and women must be saved. God told Moses in Exodus 3 to tell the people who their savior was. And he said, tell them, I am who I am. And Jesus told people to believe in his name. And throughout John, we read of various I am sayings. And these reveal that Jesus bore the very name of the Lord God Almighty. He also said the only one who has seen God is the one who is from God. 
he alone has seen the Father. Jesus manifested God to his disciples. And he continues to reveal God to us as we read his word and as we study his impeccable life and ministry, as we look at his atoning death and his glorious resurrection. There is no one like Christ Jesus the Lord. And we must respond to the revelation that we have of God through his word. So that's what's in a name, according to the start of verse 6. But who received this name? Well, we read this in verse 6. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. As I said before, we are precious to God. We are so precious to him that he has had a plan for us throughout all eternity. And if you're in the family of God, you belong to God, always have and always will. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. And that is a mind-blowing reality when you think about it. God has always known us. God has always loved us. He's always known the hour that we would first believe and receive the grace of Christ. Christ said the Father had given the disciples to him out of the world, and in Christ they have kept God's word. And there's two things to notice about that. The world the disciples were kept from, or taken out of, and the word that they have kept according to Christ. Well, we know the world. The world is a very popular term in the New Testament. It speaks of the unbelieving, godless realm that oppresses God's people and opposes God and rejects his right of rulership over it. Christ said the world hated him because it hates God. Paul used the imagery of a spiritual battle. He said Christians are engaged in a spiritual battle because the world that we've been saved out of is ruled by satanic forces of darkness. And perhaps John is the plainest in his language when he talks about the world. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I was reading about a man in Finland who bequeathed his land. He had a farm and when he, when he passed away, he bequeathed all that land to Satan in his will. His will was being studied in a court and people weren't sure what to do about this. They decided the best thing to do to honor his will was leave this farm completely on its own. Within a few years, as you can imagine, it was fallow, overgrown, and desolate. And that's the way things are in the world if Satan rules over them and the love of Christ is not present. Desolate wasteland. But we as Christians, if we're believing in Christ, we have reason to rejoice because this is the very world that the Father saves believers out of and then he gives us to the keeping of Christ. And in giving the disciples to Christ, God ensured that they would keep his word. If you look at that text, this is an extremely generous commendation from the Lord when you think about it. How can Jesus be saying that these 11 men have kept his words? As one writer commented, couldn't Jesus have said, they've barely kept my word. They've disbelieved the promises of God. They've been slow and dull in believing. And we know Christ did regularly rebuke these men for their lack of faith and understanding. We know very soon they're going to fall away in terms of leaving Christ. 
In Gethsemane, they're going to fall asleep when they were supposed to be praying for him. At the cross, they're going to walk away from him. But Christ prays for them as those who have obeyed God's word. And I think in this, we see the deep, patient, forgiving love of Christ. C.S. Lewis said that God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. And of course, he's right. Christ loves us as he loved these disciples. He loves us so much that he didn't keep a record of their wrong. And he doesn't keep a record of our failures either. We all struggle with besetting sins. And daily we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. This battle rages on. But Christ is with us. He's keeping us because he loves us. And he cares for us. He's saying that the disciples did believe his message. And so in that faith they did obey him. And this fits in well with the next point. In verses 7 and 8, we see the words of the Lord. <clears throat> if a letter was to arrive in the post for you, and it said it was from Her, Majesty, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, you open it and it says you're, you're owed a massive rebate on your taxes. And perhaps at first you're going to feel a little bit suspicious you're not going to believe it. But you turn it over and you see the official authentic stamp. And it's got a signature from an official person. So now you can trust the source. You don't need to have any doubt as to its genuineness. You can believe the words of the letter because you believe the one who sent it is trustworthy. And so it is with the words of Jesus Christ. Like the disciples, we can believe what Jesus says because we know everything he spoke was from the Father who sent him. And the Father is the author of truth. Reading in from the end of verse 6. <clears throat> they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Pause there. Every word Jesus spoke was approved by the Father. It had the stamp of authenticity and could be fully trusted. So, if you're a skeptic or you deny this claim of Christ, I would challenge you to read the Gospels with an open mind and see for yourself if his words are true. And I think you'll find every promise that he makes, every claim that he makes about himself is perfectly accurate. We'll continue reading verse 8. Did the disciples read Jesus' words and believe them? Did they receive them with faith? In verse 8 says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Jesus spoke only truth on this earth. He spoke the truth that his father sent him to declare. Later in his prayer, if you look at verse 17, he's going to say, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In Hebrews 6, verse 18, it stated plainly and unequivocally, it is impossible for God to lie. God is truth, so his word, therefore, is also true. And it's true from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, pure truth. This is what some theologians call the doctrine of inerrancy. That I like how Steve Lawson summarizes the importance of this. The inerrancy of scripture gives us great confidence 
Every truth in its pages is without any error or human reasoning. Every word contains an accurate representation of reality as things truly are. Now, we can't say that about human wisdom. Everything humans say, whether it's true or not, is flawed. There is no human word or wisdom or clever saying that can be described as pure truth. Any pure truth or pure wisdom originates in God's word. The disciples believed that Jesus spoke the truth because he was from God. And you cannot know salvation if you do not begin by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the second person of the Trinity. And we must pay attention, therefore, when someone in authority speaks to us and makes a a command to us. Because failure to obey authority can often be fatal. You think about the time you've been on a plane. If the pilot informs you of turbulence and tells you to come back to your seat and fasten your seatbelt, you do so. Or if he tells you to put your tray table up, you do so because you respect his authority. If the police officer tells you to lie on on the ground and raise your hands, you do so. Or if the driving instructor tells you to do an emergency stop because he perceives a danger, you do so. And in all three of these examples, you're obeying someone because you respect their authority. When Jesus speaks, we must obey. If you were to ask people on the streets of Belfast, who do you think Jesus was or is? You might get some people who deny his existence, but that's quite rare because we know he existed. You'll get other people who maybe say, I don't really care, and they shrug their shoulders. But some will say he was a good teacher. He had very wise sayings. He was a nice man. He looked after the poor and those who were needy. And recently in our evangelism team, as I was telling you before, I spoke to a Muslim and we asked him, who do you say Jesus is? He said, well, he is a prophet of Allah. He will return to judge the earth. But he said he's not the prophet, speaking of Muhammad. And what people fail to grasp is that Jesus is fully divine. The disciples got it. Jesus tells us the disciples got it. They understood. They knew that Jesus' words are truth. And they'd heard nothing like this before, not from any rabbi or teacher or from any parent They hadn't heard this before, and Luke said they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. It certainly did. It had the greatest authority, the very authority of God. God had said this would happen in Deuteronomy 18, 18. God says, I will raise up a prophet from among you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus perhaps when he's praying, has in mind the confession of Simon Peter in John 6. Peter said, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Knowledge and belief are inseparably linked because when we know who God is, it's incumbent upon us to respond in faith. And I suppose that's what I want to press upon your heart. If you don't have that faith, what do you do with the words of Jesus? Do you reject them? Do you ignore them? They don't faze you, perhaps. Or are they sweeter than the honeycomb to you? Like the psalmist said, are they purer than pure gold? 
Do you treasure them in your heart? Do you respond to them in faith? Do you keep his word? The disciples believed and they kept this word. As we read earlier, many of them devoted their lives to teaching this word to others. They proclaimed the truth of Jesus Christ in a God-hating generation. So precious were the words of Christ to them that they stood up and preached the exclusive message of the gospel, salvation for all who believe, who believe only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who not only spoke the truth, but declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, and the one that rose again, proving the truth of God's promise, that he would not allow his Holy One to see decay. Do you know the truth? Yes, you've heard it in Jesus' words today, but do you believe it and do you obey it? If you're merely pretending at following Christ, repent and submit to him as the Lord of your life. No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. So writes Nathaniel Hawthorne in his American classic novel, The Scarlet Letter, In it, he's describing a clergyman who appears pious and is praised as such by all of his parishioners, but he knows his own heart. He's trying to pretend to the people who he really is, but God was not deceived. He could see his deceit and hypocrisy. But if we have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need not fear that we will fall away from faith because Christ has prayed for our faith He has prayed that it would be strengthened and his prayers are always effectual because they're always in accordance with the Father's will. Like the disciples, we do doubt and slip up in our faith, but Christ holds us fast. And that leads us to the prayers of our Lord Jesus for us. Verses nine to 10. There's a few words in life that can change someone's life forever. You've won. That could change someone's life depending on the prize or the competition. You're pregnant. That could certainly change someone's life. You're in remission. That could bring unimaginable joy to someone. You've passed, etc., etc. You get the idea. But four words are prayed by Jesus in verse 9. And they should bring a disciple of Christ exceeding joy and comfort and perhaps Change your whole perspective as a a weary servant of God. Those words are simply, I pray for them. I am praying for them. It's a continuous prayer. It's not a one-time action. Our great high priest always lives to intercede for us. And Jesus delights to pray for his sheep. Our shepherd loves us so much that he's actively involved in our lives and he seeks to build up our faith and to protect us from wolves who would seek to devour and destroy our faith and shipwreck it by leading us astray. But Jesus says, I pray for them. Who does he pray for and who he doesn't pray for? We see that here as well. He's praying for the disciples. They find themselves downcast and weary They're really contemplating at this time life without their Messiah. They know that he's going to die, but they haven't fully grasped the necessity of his death and what it will mean for them and for the world. And Jesus knows this, and he knows in this this time of their need that they need consolation. And so in their hearing, 
he speaks to the Father on their behalf so that they would know that he cares for them. And if you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, we can take great comfort in this every day of the week because he continues to pray for us. Let's just dig a little bit deeper into what Christ is doing here and the significance of it. And for that, we think of Exodus 28. Because in Exodus 28, we read of Aaron. And we're given the stipulations for his role as high priest in Israel. Verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Now, there were 12 stones in that breastplate, and they, they bore the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on the breastpiece, which was over his heart. The people's representative before God was commanded by God to bind the names of his people to his heart with precious, valuable stones. Simply shows us that God's people are precious to him. They mean so much to him. And in this prayer, Christ enters the most holy place. And now in heaven, in the presence of the Father, he continues to bear our name before God and petition on our behalf. In some child of God, know this. We are loved. You are precious in God's sight. Now, if Christ prayed for every individual in the world to be saved then every single individual would be saved. Simple as that. But this isn't really how he prays, is it? In fact, he specifies that he's not praying for the world, only for those who had been given him by the Father. God knows who are his. They belong to him. And verse 6 implies that they belong to him even before they were given to Jesus' keeping. And yes, Christians have dizzied themselves over this reality for a long time. And I don't think we need to, we shouldn't, because we know Christ does love the world. After all, God loved the world so much that whoever believes in his only begotten son shall not perish but have everlasting life. But not all in the world are God's elect and not all are believing in him or will believe in him. And this isn't the time to deal with the, the doctrine of election in detail, but I will say that I can see no other explanation of Christ specifying that he does not pray for the world than to mean he knows all who will come to him. And we know that John also recorded in the book of Revelation 13 verse 8 that their names are written from before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. So this is just something for us to marvel at, that God knows his sheep that they belong to him and they hear him when he calls to them. He prays for them continually. He keeps them close to him, even when the enemy comes seeking to steal and destroy their union with God. So this is a marvelous thing. In the words of verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And at first read, that might seem a little bit redundant or a little bit unnecessary. Is it mere repetition? No, from this, the disciples are listening, and from this, Jesus' disciples hear their Lord make an unambiguous claim to full deity, because no human being dare make such a bold claim to have ownership over all the things that God has ownership of. But Jesus is saying he is the God-man. God is one, 
expressed in three persons, and all three persons have divine right and authority over us and over all of creation. We belong to the Father and to the Son and to the Spirit. They share in an, an interest and a mutual love for us. And whilst the Trinity is a mystery to us, Christ makes it very clear that the love God has for us is expressed by all three persons, and that love is beyond compare. It's why we cannot really use human illustrations and comparisons to fully understand how much God loves us, how precious we are to the Father, Son, and Spirit. We are loved to such a great extent that the Father would gladly determine in eternity past to send his one and only Son, whom he loves, come into this world, live a perfect life amongst sinful wretches like you and I, and to die for us. This is how much he loves us. What's the result of this prayer that we've studied? It says this, and I am glorified in them. This is actually in the past tense. Jesus told his father that he was glorified in his disciples you may be thinking like I was, glorified in those 11 disciples whose faith was so shaky, those men who were so slow to understand, those men who fell asleep when you asked them to pray for you in your hour of greatest need, those men who would flee from you at the hour of darkness on the cross. Yes, Jesus was glorified in them. Now, granted, he would receive even more glory from them as they went out and proclaimed the salvation, the message that he preached of salvation to all the world. But Christ receives glory with every new sinner that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and submits to him in faith. And that is our purpose, to bring glory to God. Paul says if we're eating or if we're drinking or whatever we're doing, do it all to the glory of God. That's God's will for your life. If you're ever looking for God's will, that's why you were born. He made us to glorify him. We are to be heralds of his good news. Our lives should be dedicated to bringing praise to God and bringing his news to others so that more people can praise God. There's no one like him. He alone is worthy of the world's praise. Now, as I bring things to a close, I just want to read verse 8 again. I want to read it in a different translation. Because in this translation, the New American Standard, there's a rhyme in it. And I find this rhyme very helpful to remember what we ought to do with the words of Jesus. The words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. So the rhyme is... They received and they believed. And that is what the disciples did. And it's what we ought to do. And so that's really the challenge, I think, tonight. Receive the words of Jesus and believe them. You can receive them in vain. Jesus said some seed fell on rock. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, fall away. What good is it if someone gives you a Christmas present, you take it off them, but you never open it. You, you didn't receive it. 
It's useless to you if you will not receive it the way you are ought, the way you're supposed to. The fact that we have the words of God recorded for us, preserved for us, this is a magnificent gift. Don't receive the gift in vain. Open up the word, receive it, and believe it. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he alone has the power to save you from your sins and grant you eternal life with him, free from the wrath of God, because he has taken it upon himself. And because he's done that, you and I can enjoy a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the Father, with the Spirit. If you have done so, simply be encouraged as you've read Christ's prayer tonight. He prays for you. Be comforted in knowing that you are precious to God, so precious. Six times in just five verses that Jesus talks about this word giving. He talks about what the Father had given to him and what he has given to his disciples. What could be given to the one who already owns all things? What could the Father give to the Son that he did not already have? Us, the church. Paul says, we were given to him as his body, the fullness of all, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ delights to have us. If any of you struggle with self-esteem issues, and I think most do in our society because our society sadly elevates appearance over substance, take heart in this knowledge. You are a gift from the Father to the Son, and the Son loves you so much that he gave up everything for you to be saved, for your sins to be forgiven, so that you could enjoy life with him in its fullness forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our closing hymn, which is before the throne of God above.